You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it's great to see you today. Um, Genesis chapter 3 is where you need to, to flip, and Romans chapter 3. So you want to go ahead and turn there, get both those places marked, and ready to go. If, if you have just popped in on us, um, you have caught us in the middle of a, of a set of sermons where we are working through how God uses the gospel to produce change in our lives, in our hearts, how, how that process kind of works itself out. And so over the last few weeks, to kind of just give us some 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 people to kind of help illustrate how this works itself out, um, we've introduced you to some fictitious people. We've talked about the anxious lady, the angry man, um, the addicted man last week, and, and this week we've got a new man to introduce you to. See if you know this guy. After the service, the I'm always right man catches you. You know that guy? If you don't know him, you might want to look in the mirror. You may be that guy, right? And so the, the I'm always right man catches you, and just in a moment of honesty, this is like the first moment of humility that this guy has had in years, right? I mean, he just throws it out before you. He just looks at you and says, man, I'm a jerk. I am a real jerk. Like, I think I have to be right all the time. And I want people to think I'm right even when I'm wrong. I still want them to think I'm right, right? I mean, this is that guy. He just can't let an argument go. You know that guy? Just can't let it go. I mean, like last night, he just tells you that, man, my wife, I, how could she do this? You know, I mean, she, she says there's 7 billion people on the planet. How can she not know there's 6.92 billion people on the planet? I mean, what, what, what is wrong with that lady, right? I mean, so he just lays it out before you. He, he is impossible to correct. He is so defensive that if you bring up any sort of correction or criticism in his life, he just crumbles. He, he blows up. So, I mean, literally, he, he just tells you that when his wife tries to correct him, she gets corrected for trying to correct him, right? And so when friends or coworkers try to correct him, he either blows them up or blows them off, one or the other. And, and so he just lays it that before you and he looks at you and says, what's the issue, right? He's looking for a diagnosis, like, what is my problem? Okay, now this is where we've been for the last um, month and a half as we've, and I hope this is the part of the sermon that if you've been here with us, that you could stand up here and preach at this point, right? And so we're, here's what we've been saying over and over, just repeating this to hopefully this, this lands deep down in your heart somewhere. Our man's problem is not his circumstances. His, his problem is not his wife. Men, I, maybe I could even press that one step further and say this. Your problem when you're defensive is not even in how your wife approached you. Not even in how your wife approached you, right? That's not your issue. Your issue is not um, your coworker. It's not your friend who tried to create. It's not any of those things. Your problem is your heart. That, that on a heart level, on a belief level, you have turned from banking on and trusting in God to banking on and trusting in something smaller than God. You're trusting and treasuring something in your heart above Jesus. This is the problem with all of our behavior issues. When you boil it down, it gets down to belief. That in our hearts, we are looking to something, trusting in something, believing in something other than Jesus. Okay, so, and we've kept this uh, picture up on the screen the last couple of weeks just to try to help grow us in the awareness of what this looks like. That behavior is not your ultimate problem. Belief is your ultimate problem. So if you think about this, this graph, you've got kind of these at the top of the screen, sinful, godly behavior. This is your behavior issues. All of your weird stuff that you do, defensive, envious, 
Like all, all of that is behavior, but none of that is your primary problem. See, if all you do is deal with your behavior, you deal with the pain, not the problem. See, what fuels all of that behavior is your heart. The, on a heart level, you're either believing in and trusting in God and his gospel, or you're believing in false gods and false gospels. See, this is for all of us. And see, God and false gospels, like both of these two sides, they make you promises and warnings. Like here, here's a promise and a warning from God as it relates to our um, always right man. God would look and say, promise from the gospel. I will give you all that you need for life and godliness. Specifically, I will give you all the approval that you need. All the approval and acceptance that your heart longs for, I have given that. It's already yours. You have it. It's all yours. Right now, it's yours. I, I'm giving it to you. And here's your warning. You go searching for approval outside of me, and it will wreck not only your life, but the lives of all those around you. And, and here's a false God and a false gospel. It says this, if you want to be approved, if you want to be accepted, if you want to be um, kind of found significant, if you want to be presentable to people, if you want that, then you've got to go prove yourself. You've got to go perform. You've got to go make it happen right? You, you've got to be right, and you've got to make sure even when you're wrong, they think you're right. So you've got to go prove that for yourself. And here's the warning from a false god, and, and from this specific thing, of uh, this approval idea, that, that it would warn you and say this, that if you don't go out and prove it for yourself, if, if you don't go out and get it, you're never going to have it. You're never going to be on the inside. You're never going to be accepted. You're never going to have the approval that you long for. See, and the battle for our behavior up here is always determined by what you're believing down here in your heart. See, this is why we say everything is a gospel issue. See, when, when our behavior gets weird, like when we go outside of the commands of God in our behavior, it's because in our hearts, we're not believing in a part or a piece of the gospel. See, this is our problem. So see, what our man needs, our always right man needs, always right woman needs, is not just to behave better. She needs to, or he needs to believe better. See, they... He, she needs to study and stare at the gospel, linger over the gospel, breathe deeply in the gospel. They need to remind themselves, remember all that they have, all that they are in Jesus. The, all that they're looking for, all that they're on this search for, God has already given them. So this is what we call preaching the gospel to yourself. It's taking these great gospel realities, speaking them to your heart so that you stay mindful of all that you have and all that you are in Jesus. See, preaching the gospel to yourself is how you take the medicine of the gospel and you apply it to your heart on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. This is how, it's how it's applied to you. Okay, so this is what we're trying to do in the month of May. We're trying to help build a vocabulary for our church that would condense all of these things that we have and are in the gospel, condense them down into short phrases that you can learn how to preach the gospel to your own heart and admonish the hearts of one another, right? And so we, we've got four phrases that we we're, we're kind of working through this month. So let me read these off to you real quick. Number one, we covered this a couple of weeks ago, that God is great for us because of Jesus. That he is great for us. He's in control, leveraging all of his strength for us as a good dad. So, so he is in, he's great for us. So here's the implication of that. So we don't have to be in control. We don't have to control things, right? And so here's the second one we looked at last week, that God is good for us because of Jesus. He's satisfying. So now we don't have to look to his gifts for our satisfactions. We don't have to look elsewhere to be satisfied. Um, this week, we're going to cover this, that God is gracious to us because of Jesus. So we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to look for approval elsewhere. And uh, here soon, we're going to cover this one. God is glorious to us because of Jesus. So we don't have to fear men. 
And and here's what we're trying to say in these four big gospel truths that all of our weird behavior can be boiled down to a failure to believe one or more of these truths. So you can just test yourself, right? The next time you see weird behavior, ask yourself two questions. Question number one, is the way that I'm feeling, thinking, and responding reflective of a heart that has been gospeled, that really believes in all that God has given me in Jesus? And if not, if the way I'm thinking, feeling, responding isn't reflective of that, then ask yourself the next question. What piece or what part of the gospel am I not believing in? And you're going to be able to see that like one of these things is the root reason on a heart level that, that your behavior is doing what it's doing. Make sense? Okay, so here's where we are today. Number three, that God is gracious to us so we don't have to search for approval elsewhere. So Genesis 3 is where we're starting. So if you want to flip there, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to start, I want to kind of jump straight to the problem. Um, Genesis 3 is going to help us see this. And here's, here's the, the starting point that I want us all to see this morning, is that every person on planet earth is on the search for approval. We all are. You are, I am. We all are longing for, running after approval, to prove ourselves, validity, significance. We're all running after that. Okay, so Genesis 3 is where we are. Um, if you were here last week, we covered Genesis 1, 2, and kind of got into the first six verses of Genesis 3. And, and here's what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates. He creates this with needs. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God abundantly kind of going over the top in how he meets the needs that he's created in us. So we're looking to him for satisfaction. We're looking to him for all the things that we need, right? So this is Genesis 1 and 2. And then by the time you get to Genesis uh, chapter 3, here's what you find that the Satan comes in on the scene in verse 1 of Genesis 3, the serpent, and uh, he, he starts to kind of cast a shadow um, of doubt on the goodness of God, right? So you take the goodness of God, and it, it gets, in the first six verses of Genesis 3, it gets dimmed and distorted by the serpent's deceptive statements. And then by the time you get to verse 6 in chapter 3, you have got Adam and Eve, they have both eaten the fruit, and everything has changed in that moment. Okay, now I want you to see what happens as soon as they eat the fruit. Sin enters the equation in their life and what happens in the next verse. Look at verse seven. Genesis three, verse seven. So they just sinned and watch how this plays out. Genesis three, seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Okay, now... When it says naked, it's not just talking about, oh, we don't have clothes, so we need clothes. It's not talking. It's much bigger and more significant than that. Okay, if you think Genesis 1 and 2, here's the same thing we talked about last week. God has created us with needs and longings, and he's, and he's abundantly met all of those. So we're created with this want for satisfaction, and he's saying, listen, I'm your source for satisfaction. He's created us with this need for approval, this want of approval, and he's saying, listen, I give you all the approval that you could ever want. Genesis 1 and 2, here's the picture that you see of Adam and Eve. If God were to line them up in front of him and examine their life, every area of their life, line them up and examine them. Here was the stamp over their life, approved, presentable. In Genesis 1 and 2, they're righteous before God. Okay, now here's what happens in verse 6. They eat the fruit and the moment they sin, they like God's approval, their presentability is forever altered. They're no longer presentable. For the first time, when you get to Genesis 3, verse 7, for the first time, they're looking at God, they're looking at themselves and the circumstances, and they realize, for the first time, they realize, wow, we are in serious trouble. We've got things about us now that need covering. 
Like when they look at their lives now, for the first time, there is a tangible sense of if we don't get something to protect us, if we don't get another source of approval, we are in serious, serious trouble. Okay, now listen to what I'm about to say here. As soon as Adam and Eve lost the approval of God, they immediately turned toward a desperate search for approval in other things. See this? That they realized they're naked. Okay, now watch the next phrase. They immediately turned to other things. Watch this. So they, they just realized they were naked and then, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see this? See what just happened there? See, this is bigger than, oh, we need like a skirt and we need a whatever. Like this is bigger than that. Here's what's happening there. They realize that there is something now where they're not presentable before God. They're no longer righteous before God. Like the presentability and the approval of God over their life has been altered. So now look at what they do. They go on this desperate hunt for approval in other things. So they start gathering these fig leaves. They start gathering these leaves and then they put them on themselves in hopes that just maybe when they're covered with these little fig leaves that God will look at them and say, you know what? Now you're approved again. You're presentable again. You're, you're good again. But it doesn't happen that way, right? That's not how the story goes. Okay, but I want you to see this. This is not just an Adam and Eve thing. This is an all humanity thing. When we lose the approval of God over our life, we all go on a desperate search for approval, for validity, in other places. We all do. I, listen, and this isn't like some abstract sort of a thought what we're thinking here. This is earthy. Like this leaks into your life in a thousand different ways. Um, the French philosopher, his name was Blaise Pascal, probably the most uh, brilliant mind in the, 16, or the 17th century. Um, he, he called this the disinherited prince syndrome. And here's what he's saying in that that every human being has a faint remembrance of their like prince likeness or princess likeness of Genesis 1 and 2. And they're spending the rest of their life trying to regain what was lost there. Like disinherited princes trying to go back what they once had. Okay, now listen, and I, what we're saying is this is all of us. We're all disinherited princes and princesses and we've all got this faint remembrance of what we once had and we all search for that approval in a thousand different ways. It leads to all this weird behavior in our life. Think about where it led Rocky Balboa. You cannot be an American without loving Rocky Balboa. Let's just get that straight, right? And so in Rocky 1, he is about to fight Apollo Creed. Remember this moment? Where his wife looks at him and she's like, listen, you do not have to get your brains beat out by that guy. You do not have to get in the ring. You do not have to do that. And you remember what Rocky's kind of words back to, to his wife was? Went like this. Rocky, you don't have to do it. You, you don't have to get in there. Here's what he says back. The only thing I want to do is go the distance. I'm starting to get chills already, right? <laughs> the only thing I want to do is go the distance. That's all. Nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with Creed. If I go them 15 rounds, he's a great English guy too. If I go them 15 rounds and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know then I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. Now you see this? 
This isn't just an Adam and Eve thing. It's not just a rocky thing. It's a you thing and a me thing. That when we walked in the door this morning and, and sat in this room, every person in this room is looking for something to make sure they're not a bum. We're drinking from some fountain to make sure that we're presentable. We're drinking from some fountain to make sure that when people look at us, that they're approved of that. That when God looks at us, that they're approved. We all are on this search for approval. We all are grabbing and grasping for, for these fig leaves to cover ourselves. Okay, now let me just show you kind of a search for like this, this approval, what this looks like in our life, what it looks like displayed. Um, this is just like we talked about satisfaction last week. How It's a source idol. That it's down at the root of unbelief. And when you sever the unbelief in this need for approval, when you sever that branch of unbelief, all these behaviors um, fall with it, right? It's a source idol. It leads, it shoots up in all this weird behavior. So let's just kind of tease this out. What, what does that look like? And so take our always right man. Like, why is it that he just can't let it go? Why is it that he's always got to be right even when he knows he's wrong? Why is it that he's, he's so defensive that you cannot correct him? Any criticism just blows his mind. Like, why is that? Like, what is going on there? Why is it that he cannot confess his sin? Why is it that he could not just look at his wife and say, I am sorry, I was wrong. But it's gotta be, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But let me list the 14 things you did that kind of lead to all that. Like, why is, why is that? Like what's going on? And listen, in the heart level, here's what's happening. He has made a fig leaf out of being right. What, what makes him not a bum is people looking at him thinking, that guy's right. He's got it together. You see, you see what's happening there? That, that our search for approval, we've turned from God for it and we've made it into something else. Take the, uh, the guy that's always at work, right? The guy that, I mean, if work is the... He, he's tied up in it. I mean, he just can't get away from it. He's that guy. He's obsessed with it. Like, what's going on there? See, we, we as good, hardworking Americans, and this is man, well, this is all of us in the room. If you've got a job, you're working at it, chances are you're in this in some way, shape, or form, is that we have made our performance at work our sense of presentability. So how good we perform there gives us a sense of, I'm okay with me now. Like, see, we, we try to regain what was lost in the garden with our work. Like, we made a fig leaf out of our work. Okay, take the, uh, take the 20-year-old that just bounces from relationship to relationship to relationship. What's going on there? See, they're trying to find, they've made a fig leaf out, out, out of a, a relationship, out of a person. And so as long as they can get them on them, right, and, and kind of dress themselves up with this fig leaf, then they're okay. Then they're presentable. Then they're approved. Take the workout crazy guy, right? I mean, you don't see this guy without like a bottle of muscle milk and his protein bars, right? That guy. See, what, what's the deal there? See, like there, there is this search for approval and, and he has turned to his image, like what he looks like, like his bench press for his fig leaf, right? And this one's going to sing a little bit. Um, how about parents in the room? See, I'm always amazed at how easy it is to make a good thing a fig leaf, right? That it's so easy to take your kids and to, to determine your presentability off of your kids. Like, why is it that, that a parent, when corrected on her parenting, blows up? Why is that? I mean, why is it that, that if a mom is challenged in her parenting, that the world just crumble? Why, why is that? 
You know why that is? It's because we have staked our sense of, of presentability on our parenting. Like our presentability is determined by how our kids turn out. If they turn out okay, how well we parent them. See, if our kids are okay, we're presentable. If they turn out to be good citizens, then we're okay. You see how this works? See, we've made our fig leaves our kids. And let me just throw this last one out there, just this whole idea of competition. See, in competition, and, and dads, I, like, I, I want you to make sure that this registers somewhere in you, especially as you try to parent and, and, and love on your kids. See, competition, this whole thing like sports, this could be in a classroom, this could be in band, this could be in whatever you're doing. This whole idea of competition, you can do competition for the glory of God, it's just seldom done that way. Do you know why it is that, that probably you care, one, so much about how well your kids are doing? And, and you know why your kids probably care so much about what, what they're doing? You know why they are so competitive on a baseball field? They just break down crying when they strike out. And while you're crying over there in the stands, right? Do you know why that is? Now listen to this. If you're a parent, listen to this. Do you know why chances are your kid is so competitive? It's idolatry. They are basing their sense of, of who they are. That their acceptance is staked on how well they can perform. And, and parents, if you're not careful as you promote competition in their life, you may be promoting idolatry in their life. If you don't constantly keep addressing the idolatry in their heart with this, you're going to be promoting sin in them. See, it's so easy to take all these things and make them a fig leaf, make them a way that we're trying to gain what we lost in the garden. Okay, now, now here's the good news, is that, that, that God has promised us all the approval that we long for, that God is gracious to us. Translated, he gives us all the acceptance, all of the, the, the presentability, all of he, he, he's the one that gives that all to us, right? Okay, Genesis 3, I want you to see this. And, and by the way, when we say God is gracious, it's important that we have a working definition of grace. So let me just give you a definition of grace here, just to make sure that this is clear in your mind what we're talking about. Grace, uh, this would be a good maybe definition for you. Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Say that one more time. Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. And so here's what we're saying. We're saying God is unobligated. That no one in here has put God in, in their debt. That no one forces God to do things. He is unobligated in, in giving these things to us. He's unobligated in granting us unconditional acceptance, unconditional approval, unconditional presentability. He's unobligated in all of that and what, what he grants us. And listen, we are undeserving of it. There's not a one of us in this room that deserved that. He's an unobligated giver. He grants this unconditional acceptance to us undeserving people. That's what we mean. When we say God is gracious, it's important that we have a working definition of what we're talking about with grace there. Okay, so look at Genesis um, chapter three. Look at down in verse 21. So, so Adam and Eve, they have grabbed and gathered fig leaves to try to cover themselves. And look what it says in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and God, he clothed them. 
You see what just happened there? God, in his grace, see, this is one of the first point forward, kind of this first kind of foreshadowing of what God was going to do for us in Jesus. He slaughters these innocent animals, and, and that way he can take the fig leaves off of Adam and Eve and give them suitable garments. And see, it's this foreshadowing of what God's going to do for us as he sends his perfect son, his innocent son, slays him on a cross so that now he can cover all of our shame, all of our unpresentability, all of our disapprovedness. So you can cover all of that. This is the first point forward in that. Now flip over to Romans chapter 3. And let me give you a picture of what Genesis 3 is pointing to. Romans chapter 3. If you want to uh, condense the whole Bible into seven verses, Romans 3, 20 through 26 is your seven verses. It's the Bible condensed into, into seven. Um, I don't have time to, to work through the whole seven. I want to just point out one word in a couple of different verses and, and make sure this word is clear for you. So Romans 3, um, starting in verse 23, goes like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm always amazed at how many people know that verse but don't know verse 24. If you're a memorizer, don't just memorize 23. Make sure you get to the good news of verse 24. Okay, so look at verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified. I want you to circle that word justified. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so I want to take that word justification, just that word to make sure that this is super clear in your mind. Um, the, the New Testament is going to use that word over 40 times. Mostly it's in the writings of Paul. And when it says justify, here, here's what the word justify means. It means to declare righteous. So when, when the theological term justification is spoken or said, here's what that word means. It means that God, because of the work of Jesus, has declared you righteous, approved, presentable. This is what the word justification means. Okay, justification is a courtroom word. Okay, so it ushers you into the courtroom where God presides as the judge. And he, much like Adam and Eve, he, he would line you up, he would examine you, and here's what he finds in the courtroom of his justice. That you are unpresentable. That you are not righteous. That you have fallen short of his glory. That, that when you stand before him, that you are not approved. Right? Th this is what happens in the courtroom of God's justice. You're, you're examined and you're found wanting. And here's God's pronouncement over you. He says the verdict is guilty. The sentence is death. Great news, huh? This is what happens in the courtroom. But that's not the end of justification. See, justification takes us to this beautiful gospel reality that in our place, God sends Jesus, his sinless son. And Jesus, his sinless son, crawls up on the cross and becomes our sinless substitute. Now, now look at what happens on the cross. On the cross, all of our sin is stacked onto Jesus. That's not all, though. Because of the cross, all of Jesus' perfection, all of his righteousness, all of his presentability is stacked onto you. You see what just happened there? He got all of our sin. We get all of his perfection. He gets all of our penalty. We, we get all of his righteousness. Do you see what the gospel's doing? See, in the gospel, you're not just pardoned. You're perfected. Do you see that? 
That in the gospel, you're not just pardoned. God doesn't just say, God doesn't just excuse your sin in the gospel. God infuses you with the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that now, this is what justification announces to us. That in his grace, God has forgiven our past, our present, and all of our future sin. That he no longer deals with us on the basis of our performance for him. He deals with us on the basis of Jesus's performance for us that he would pronounce over your life, over my life, that he, she, you're approved, that you're presentable now, that you don't have to search elsewhere for that. You see, this is what justification announces to us. And see, now now here's here's the effects of knowing that. It's really humbling and it's really hope-giving. Now think about the humbling part. Here's the humbling part of of the gospel, of justification of God's grace. That you are so defective that Jesus had to die for you. You know that? That's how defective you are? That if we want to line up your parenting skills, you're defective enough where Jesus had to die for your lack of good parenting. If we want to line up your financial management, Jesus had to die to cover your lack of, of, of ability to manage your resources. See, I mean, we could line up any, your morality, your honesty, your integrity. We could line up any one of those things and you're defective enough in that area that Jesus had to die for that. If you want to know how serious your sin is, how defective you are, look at the cross. That's how defective you are, that somebody had to die in your place for it. When you think about your life, your mom, your dad, your friend, your coworker, your boss, will not say that the most um, hurtful thing to you. You know who does? God does. You're far more defective than you could far imagine. You're, you're so defective that Jesus had to die for you. See, that's the humbling part. See, this is the hope-giving part, though. That it's not just see, humbling is Jesus had to die for you. Here's hope-giving, that Jesus was glad to die for you. He, he loves you enough that he was glad to do it that he was glad to get on a cross to pay for your sin. Now, now think about how, how this transforms the way you would take criticism. See, now the next time somebody, we'll just use parenting as an example. The next time somebody comes up and corrects your parenting, you know what you can say? You don't know the half of how bad I am. See, the gospel humbles us in that way. I've got nothing to, nothing to defend myself with. You, you don't know half of how horrible of a parent I really am. Of all the places I fall short. But see, it's also hope-giving. Now listen to this. It's also hope-giving that we don't have to throw a pity party in our unfit parenting, that that we can run to Jesus who is the perfect parent for us. That that on the cross, like he he was perfect. He, He paid for all of your imperfect parenting. Do you see this? It's humbling and hope giving all at the same time. You see how that changes our defensive kind of we've got to prove ourselves and we've got to go searching for it over here in our parenting. and all. We don't have to do that. We don't have to minimize sin. Yeah, you're right and there's a lot more. And I am so grateful for Jesus who paid for all of it. There was this uh, moment in the Reformation where uh, Martin Luther, the guy that God used to kind of spark the Reformation, um, he was just in these serious bouts of, of despair. And there was one night that he, he woke up and he had this dream going of just this tangible experience where Satan is just accusing one after another. I mean, just throwing these darts of accusation. So, so he's just hearing Satan say, man, 
Martin, look at your life. You're worthless. Look at yourself. You're a failure. You're prayerless. You're faith, you're faithless. Look at yourself. Look, look at this arrogance. Look at this pride. Look at, look at this impatience. Look at yourself. And, and Luther looks back and says, are you finished? And Satan says, no, I'm not, as a matter of fact. Look at your arrogance. Look at this pride. Look at all the areas in your life where you fall short. How can you run to God? How, how can you even be in the presence of God? And Luther looks back and says, are you finished? And Satan says, yeah, I, I guess I am for now. And, and Luther says, I cannot deny one of those. I am all of them. But across them all rides the blood of Jesus. See this? That when you think of your sinfulness, when you think of the areas that you fall short, your lack of good parenting, here's the gospel reality that God is gracious. It's covered. When you think of lust in your life, covered. When you think of un, like an undisciplined, God, I need to read the Bible, I need to, covered. When you think of prayerlessness in your life, covered. When you think of a lack of honesty in your life, covered. When you think of all of these areas of your life, here is the great gospel truth, covered. Doesn't that feel a little bit dangerous? Can you really tell people that? You know what the ironic thing is? The more you know that, the better you'll behave. The more you believe that, the better you'll behave. See, the, the, the more that settles into your heart, the, the more that becomes a reality for you, the, the, the better you'll act, the better you'll live for Jesus. Now, let me ask you the question. Are you living, are you living in that? Are you living in the, like presently, in the reality that God has approved you? That God is gracious because of Jesus, he is gracious. Are you living in that? See, here's, um, here's how I think almost everyone, if you're a Christian in the room, how almost every one of us lives. When we think of God saving us from the penalty of our sin, we think all by grace alone. Thank you, Jesus. That's all you. Thanks, God. But when we think kind of how our relationship with God works after we get saved from the penalty of our sin, we, we start to, to grow in this this faulty understanding that, that now how we relate to God after we're saved is by our own performance. So I, I know God saved us by grace, but now we kind of stay in right relationship with God by how well we do. See, it's just gathering new fig leaves. See, it's just getting, I, listen, they can even be religious fig leaves, right? We can even turn to God now, you know, I know I'm you're saved by grace, but now I stay right with you by making sure I'm reading enough, by making sure I'm praying enough, by making sure I'm memorized. See, we can turn them into religious fig leaves just as easy, right? And listen, your heart is hardwired. The reflexive nature of your heart is to go towards performance, See, you, you, the reflexive nature for, in your heart is to leave God's economy of grace and to run to your economy of performance. Now, I want you to listen to these words by Jerry Bridges as he kind of addresses this. Listen to what he says. He says, my observation of Christendom, just the mass group of people who call themselves Christians, of Christendom is that most of us tend to base our personal relationship with God on our performance instead of on his grace. If we, uh, if we've performed well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. If we haven't done so well, our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. Moreover, we are always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder 
to, to do better. We seem to believe success in the Christian life, however we define it, is basically up to us. Our commitment, our discipline, and our zeal with some help from God along the way. We Now listen to this. We give lip service to the attitude of the Apostle Paul. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But our unspoken motto is, God helps those who help themselves. And here, here's what I'm saying today. I think most of us in this room that would call themselves Christians, you may be unconscious of it, you may not know it, but you live by the motto of God helps those who help themselves. See, this is why I hear so many, or, or so much just weird counsel from Christians, well-meaning Christians. I, um, we planted Stonegate 20 months ago, and God has blown in to, to this group of people. It's, it's been really phenomenal just to watch happen. He has been really, really good to us. And I don't know how many times the conversation has gone like this as people ask me about it. Rodney, how's Stonegate going? How's, you know, how's life going? And my response is, man, it is going so good, I can't believe it. I could not have dreamed of this. Family is great. Stonegate is great. I mean, it, it blows my mind. I am in awe. And here's their response. Well-meaning Christians, it sounds something like this. Well, yeah, you, you deserve that. I mean, you're, you're a good guy. You're doing a good job. You're preaching good. You're, you deserve that. See, it's, it's the motto. God, God helps those who, who help themselves. It's just coming out in a little different language. Can I just set the record straight here? Stonegate is not doing well because I deserve it. It's not doing well because you deserve it or we deserve it. It's doing well despite the fact we don't deserve it. It's doing well because God is gracious. That's why. I mean, do we know that? Do, do we know that? See, it's not an economy of performance. God doesn't relate to us based on how well we preach around here, how good our people are around here. If he related to us that way, we'd all be dead. That's where we'd be. See, now, I, and I just ask you to test your own heart on this. See, what happens when, when things don't go your way? What does that conversation sound like? See, when we leave the economy of grace and we go to the economy of performance, here's that, that whole, that whole thing plays out this way. Bad things are happening. Well, God, I, I went to church. I was serving at church. I was tithing. I was doing all the things you ask and you give me this. Or it might sound like this if you're on the other side. I deserve it. I, I, I'm, I've been behaving terrible. I've been, I'm reckless. I'm, I, I deserve that. You see this? It, it's the economy of performance. It's I do this and God relates to me based on what I do, not on what Jesus has done for me. And see, and when we go to the economy of performance, when, when bad things happen, we'll do the same thing when it's flipped and good things happen. Then you know why good things are happening? You've seen how hard we've been working around here? That's why it's happening that way. You see how much of the Bible we know? That's why. You see, th this is what happens. See, when we go to the economy of performance and leave the economy of grace, we start thinking that God relates to us based on how well we perform. And that is not how God relates. Listen, you're justified. That means that when God sees you, he does not see you in your sin, but in the sinlessness, sinlessness of his son. That's how he sees you, in Jesus so his perfection is your perfection. His sinlessness is your sinlessness. His righteousness is your righteousness. And think about how, how this works out when you sin. See, you test yourself on this. 
economy of performance, economy of grace. See, if you've got the economy of performance down, here's what you're going to hear when you sin. Condemnation. Not conviction, condemnation. Here's what condemnation sounds like. You did that. That's unbelievable that you did that. And let me tell you this. Look at that sin right there. There is no way you can go to Jesus in that. See, here's what conviction sounds like. See, condemnation forces us to run from God. Conviction brought by the Holy Spirit. Not, this isn't a performance-based issue. This is the economy of grace issue. Goes like this. I cannot believe I just did that. But here's the great news. Because God relates to me based on how Jesus performed for me, I can run to God with everything I have, even this mess that I've made. Is that how you respond? In your sin? See, for most of us in here, our sin stiff arms us from God. It doesn't draw us closer to God. And that's because we've, we've, we've jumped over to this economy of, of performance. Let me show you the effects of this. Listen to these words by uh, Richard Lovelace as he talks about, as he talks about how this economy of performance, the effects that it has on our life. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensiveness, this assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. See, when you aren't sure that God really accepts you just like you are based on Christ's work for you, see, and this is how a lot of us live, right? We really think that God is going to be more pleased with us someday when we can go to him without this stuff around us, like without that anger. Then he'll be a lot more pleased with us. See, he'll be pleased with us when we can go to him, this future version of us, without this lust, without this issue. That's not how God works. But see, if we believe that's how God works, it produces defensiveness in us. This we have to prove ourselves. We have to show them that they're wrong and we're right. It produces this envy in us. You know what that envy feels like? I kind of like it when that doesn't go well for them. It's kind of fun to watch them suffer a little bit. See, on the other side, envy sounds like this. Um, I, I, I don't like it when those good things happen. I don't like it when, when they have good See, you know what produces that? You know what produces in us like this want to do things so we'll be noticed by people? It's this failure to believe that we're approved by God on the work of Jesus. I mean, we could go down the list here. See, if, if we're not living consciously right now in the awareness that our approval, our approval is given to us by God because of Jesus, then we'll run to a thousand different fig leaves to try to gain it. So let me end with this, um, what this sounds like in preaching this to yourself. And, and listen, when you think of preaching this gospel truth to yourself, that God is gracious to you, so you don't have to prove yourselves to others, your heart is so prone to wonder to the economy of performance. It's so prone to do that. On Tuesday, chances are you're going to be living in performance mode. On Wednesday, probably in performance mode. When you get confronted or criticized, probably in performance. So you've got to constantly be reminding yourself, I am approved based on the work of Jesus for me, not my work for God. 
You have to constantly remind yourself of that. You've got to, like I, have to constantly remind myself that because Jesus has proved himself for me, I don't have to prove myself to others. Because Jesus has performed perfectly for me, God still approves of me when I perform imperfectly. Because Jesus justifies me, I don't have to live on a desperate search to justify myself before others. Because Jesus won for me, I'm free to lose. You hear that? You're free to lose when you know that Jesus won for you because Jesus was right for us, for me. It's okay to say, I am wrong. I'm so, I'm wrong here. It's so free. You can do that when you know that God has approved of you because Jesus won the final argument for me. It's okay to let go and lose arguments. So, so this is how this search for approval, this is how it practically plays out for me. And, and just to reiterate, it plays out for you some way. I don't know how, but it's in you. You're, you're in some way, in some places, you're driven by the same search for approval. So this is what um, typically happens to me. It's one of, and I've got, I could go with a lot of different examples, but one of the most prevalent in my life of how pr- approval and this search for kind of takes me to weird watering holes is with preaching, with preaching. And so um, every Saturday night, um, if you want to know where I am at 7 p.m., I'm in my office praying over, thinking over notes, um, that I want to try to share with you on a Sunday morning. That's, that's where I'm huddled up doing my thing there. And inevitably, every Saturday night at seven o'clock, the battle breaks out for belief in this thing. That my heart bends so hard toward trying to find my approval in how well I can preach to you and what you think of my preaching. It just bends that way. And so literally, like, there, there becomes this weird pressure in my office at 7 p.m. on Saturday. Um, and and th- this is what I live with if I'm not careful. My heart bends in this direction. That my week is determined by my sermon. So if I preach a good one, my week is great. It is awesome. If it's an average one, I've got an average week. If it's a terrible sermon, man, just look out. My week's going to be terrible, right? And, and so it... My heart bends toward this economy of performance, trying to find approval in other things. And in that moment in my office, when the battle breaks out, I have got to learn how to preach my best gospel sermons to my own heart. That Rodney, your search for approval is done. It's over. God has already given you all that you need. That approval you long for from other people, out of that sermon, God has already given you that. All that you want, all that you long for, he he has secured for you in the work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. You no longer need to look to a sermon to prove to people you're not a bum. You don't have to do that anymore. So Rodney, sit on this. Soak in this. Breathe deeply this gospel air. God approves of you And it has nothing to do with the quality of your sermon. He accepts you. It has nothing to do with on how people accept your sermon. You're presentable before God and it has nothing to do with how many people show up on a Sunday morning. Rodney, breathe that. And so now I I can pick up my notes. Rodney, you can pick up your notes, look over them, pray over them, and enjoy preaching them to these precious people. Because God is gracious to us. So Rodney, you no longer have to look for approval elsewhere. Amen? Let's pray. Romans 3 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it just so clearly 
displays what God has done for us in Jesus and what that means for our life. That we are justified. That God no longer relates to us based on our performance for him. But on Christ's perfect performance for us. I think there's one thing that needs to be made clear in that though. That it also says that we are justified. That that we're redeemed when we place our faith in what God has done for us in Jesus. When, when we, it's not just, faith is not just agreeing with these things. It's trusting and treasuring all that God has done for us in Jesus. So it's trusting that. That God, fig leaves won't make me presentable. Only Jesus will make me presentable. And it's treasuring God above all things. And at that moment, the God who loves to give an obligated grace gives it to you. So I just want to make sure that connection is clear, that your justification, it's based on the grace of God enabling this response of faith where you trust and treasure Jesus. And in that moment, we move to the economy of grace. And so for those of you who would call yourselves believers in the room, let me just ask you the question. Where is your search for approval taking you? What are you looking to in your life to prove that you're not a bum? It could be education. It can be your finance. It could be your house. It could be your kids. It could be your job. I mean, there's, there's a million different ways that this could leak itself into, into our life. Where does that approval, that search for approval take you? And will you just hear this today? Just hear this. Breathe this in. God is gracious to you. You need look nowhere else for approval because the, the approval and the presentability that you long for can only be given by God. Everything else is a fig leaf. So God, I pray that you might press this deep into our heart. I pray for so many of us in the room who relate to you based on our performance for you, not on the performance of Jesus for us. So God, will you help us? God, by your grace, will you help us believe this? Will you sink this deep into our heart? On, on Tuesday when we're criticized. Will you help us believe that God has approved this so we don't have to, to be defensive? When, when, on Wednesday, we look to work for our figly, for our approval. But will you help us know that, that Jesus has already approved this? When we look to our kids, when we look to our um, image and our um, shape of our body and when we look to milk, God will you will you ring this truth in our brain we are already approved so God we pray by your grace that you would do these things for this group of people by your grace you would help us live in your grace it's in your good name that we pray amen why don't you stand with us thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church located in Midlothian Texas 
For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.